Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good evening, good afternoon, everyone. It is I, Viz Gorilla Economist, with my main man, Monsieur Matthew Eret. You can find him over at uh, RisingTideFoundation.net, uh, as well as TheCanadianPetrat.com. You can check him out, as well as his Substack. He also writes for TheStrategicCulture.org. And with that being said, Matthew Eret, welcome back. Yes, yes, we are preparing the guillotines for the, uh, the traitors. Uh, we cannot wait to execute them. We. Oui. In a very metaphorical, metaphorical sense, yes. <laughs> yes, only metaphorical because only we are metaphorical. Yes, for anyone listening, <laughs> we do not endorse violence. No, we, we, no, no, never. <laughs> oh, uh, man, Matt. It's another yeah. week. I changed the, the, the name of the show. It's no longer the Geostrategic Hour. Hmm. What is it's it? Called, it's The Great Game with Matthew Arrett. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I can go with that. I can yeah. go with that. The great game with Matthew Aaron. We're titling it out in the whole nine yards. So it's pretty cool. I, I, I think people will be like, what is this? The great game? What is this? And this is what we talk about. We're talking about something that's been in play for several, several decades, over two centuries at this point. And we're breaking it down. And Matt's, Matt is the brain trust in, in getting in the details and, and peeling back the layers of this onion because all the things that have been happening for the last several decades brings us up to, up to the point where we're at currently. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's super. That that's a super important point you just made because we are living in the wake uh, of the past of past uh, foolish, uh, tragic people who made foolish decisions, evil people who uh, subverted good decisions, and a lot of sacrifices of very good people who did who put into to motion positive dynamics and all three are are enmeshed and and j that shape the wave of potential that is the future that we are living in right now and we are in a very underdefined future so I, I think that the idea of the great game from that standpoint um with the historical geopolitical appreciation top down wise is is very good and uh i think the the important thing about the great game um concept which gives people so much room to understand where are the weaknesses in the empire is that the the empire it i mean for those who don't know right great game uh was always the term that the british empire always used to describe their geopolitical uh, um objectives on the terrain of the world and uh this emerged 130 or so years ago in the current form under lord mackinder uh, who is a leading Fabian Society official who formulated the science of geopolitics. Now, this preceded him. Um, his followers formulated and, and really advanced the idea of great game, which is just, you know, every game has its rules. Whether you're playing chess or checkers or Monopoly, whatever, there's a fixed set of rules that everyone has to agree on for the game to work. Um, and at the end of the game of Monopoly, there's not going to be many leaders or many victors coming out with a with 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 a, a new economy <laughs> that they've created that benefits everybody there's going to be one monopoly uh that defeats all of the weaker who are not fit to survive that's the nature of that game and it's fine as a game that you play with the family in the living room on a on a rainy day but the the empire doesn't think of it as a as just a board game they think of the world that way and everybody has to play by the same fundamental rules it's a closed system with one ultimate outcome of that those who are the most fit to break the rules that they themselves create are uh, and and subvert the weaker who are maybe more naive and believe in the uh, the rule book that they've been given by those who have who have created the game they will lose and that's just the nature of 
of humanity and the, the laws of the universe. They're just abiding by the laws of the universe. Um, so the, the, the empire can only be defeated and has only been defeated historically where human beings have both recognized the nature of the rigged game and have chosen to break the rules in a lawful way, which might seem paradoxical for some people listening to that, right? Because rules you think are synonymous with lawfulness. So how could you break <laughs> rules in a lawful way? I love that. Well, yeah, it's nice, eh? Hmm. But that's exactly what China and Russia and the multipolar alliance are doing. That's what American leaders who use, who who typically have gotten shot at and died while in office historically, or other great leaders throughout the, you know, the epochs have all recognized and, and what made them powerful. Martin Luther King, what made him powerful? Wasn't that he was from the right family of uh, of landlords or anything. No, he wasn't. Um, he was able to both recognize the nature of the game and then he lawfully broke the rules by looking to the higher laws of nature of the universe where justice exists, where gravity exists, all as different sides of the same thing. And he chose to introduce new conditions into the system that were not controlled by his enemies. That's what Russia and China are doing. Right. And that's the only hope for... The West, that's the only hope for Afghanistan, is that these lawful uh, defiances of the rules win the day and not the yeah. those who want to break the rules of the game, but only by kicking over the chessboard uh, and lighting everybody on fire. That's right. that's the other way of breaking rules unlawfully. There's an old adage when I whenever I work with a client and they're facing some uh, uh, some some, you know, some challenges. One of the things I always tell clients, I always tell people, I always tell people that are especially in the game of investing, this, that, and the other, and whatever they need to do, I always say, listen, here's the deal. You got to understand the system. You got to understand how to play the game. You know, you mm -hmm. got to understand how the game is played. And you got to understand, first and foremost, break all the rules, but don't break the law. Mm -hmm. Right. So for them to go ahead and use a a law based order, and this is why you know we, we see the Sino Russian nexus, as I'd like to call them always refer to the international law, the international law, the, the, the and they would cite the law before they move something or before they counteract something that the rules-based order likes to go back, you know, likes to go on. Mm -hmm. So it's imperative that people understand that there are two systems here. One is this fake rules-based order, which likes to masquerade as some sort of a, a an agreement, some sort of a, a an agreed-upon set of standards as law, for the rest of the masses, while these guys who are in control, these guys who steer the whole darn thing, break the rules all the time. They're, they'd have no uh, uh, regard for law whatsoever versus a law-based system, which our hope and prayer as humanity on this earth is that that system, the law-based multipolar world, triumphs and crushes and displaces the rules-based order. Well said. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, <clears throat> part of when people are wondering, well, what what is how do you start thinking about natural law? Um, uh, how do you think about the, the the idea of a a law based international order? Because obviously, you have to have some laws are not a bad thing. People, some people are go I've, I've encountered are a little bit radical, uh, like ultra libertarian, and they're they're of the view that no, all all laws are just going to be by their nature, which they confine your freedom of motion as an individual. They're all bad and we should just be all left to do whatever. Now I, I would contort or contort retort uh, contest uh, that no, there, there some, if you're some laws, um, if you just um, have your personal desires completely unbounded to be as selfish as you want to be and just do whatever you want, that doesn't make you more free. It doesn't. It doesn't give you. It doesn't enhance your potentials to to be your best self uh, in any way. Um, if so, in some cases there are lawful rules to follow. Which, if you obey them, your power to to be your best part of yourself, to access the best, to have better chances of peace and harmony in the community and the nation and the community of nations that you're a part of is enhanced. Um, like for example, if you obey the, obey the laws, I like using this example of physics. Right? If you if you obey the laws of aerodynamics, you discover and obey them, you are now free to do what you couldn't do while you were either ignorant or in disobedience of the laws of aerodynamics, which is fly. You can take something heavier than air, like a metallic structures, and induce them to fly you. That That is a huge freedom. 
but it requires being obedient to certain laws of nature. Um, I think it's the same thing for the moral laws. Um, if you if you do things which protect the inalienable rights of every individual to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's a great example of natural law. Then if you infringe on those things, your rights can be taken away from you. If you if you kill and steal your neighbor, you might have repercussions in the legal system. Yes, you will not have rights for the period of your punishment, but regardless, overall, there's a reason for it. Um, the thing today with empire is that it is acting according to the rules that it's set. Like, for example, now leaving Afghanistan, you have this this motion, the, U, the last U.S. Uh, plane sort of officially left. Doesn't mean the influence of the Anglo-American establishment in the Middle East is gone. That's not true. If anything, that's getting worse yeah. and it will be continuously getting worse. However, they say we're, we're washing our hands of this. Um, and we're going to like follow the rules. The rules are going to be, well, the Taliban, you know, we still have them on the, on the, uh, the terrorist list. Thus they're, they're not a legitimate government and thus they cannot access the aid that we had been giving them like 75% of the, the budget of Afghanistan was through us and other allied foreign aid. Uh, none of the IMF, uh, money will ever be accessible to the Taliban. They're, the the Afghan central bank assets are all going to be confiscated, um, which is, I think, upwards of like $9.5 billion mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. So, like, but these are all the rules. And yeah, if people also die and suffer, that's just the way it is. And we'll yeah. see what happens. They also confiscated, I think, about two tons of their gold as well. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it, it's pretty funny. When when you look at a, a this, dude, the U.S. sent over 100,000 troops. You're talking about 100,000 troops, Predator drones, Reaper drones, M1 tanks, B-52s, B-1Bs, Moab bombs, uh, AI, uh, next-generation high-speed ubiquitous computing, networked uh, strike uh, uh, systems, uh, cruise missiles, uh, trillions of dollars spent, and they were beaten by a ragtag guerrilla group of self-funded guys, okay, of self-funded individuals who were able to do this with a AK-47, some black pajamas, and a horse. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Well, this, but this is this has been the thing uh, throughout history, um, which we've seen, right? We've seen this with the uh, the period of the, the the famous Battle of Three Hundred against the uh, the Warring Persians with all their slaves and mercenary soldiers who were resisted. Over a million strong were resisted for days on end, impossibly, by only 300 Spartan uh, soldiers who were coming at it from a totally different moral and and philosophical perspective. Um, They actually had something to defend and fight for um, versus all of the hired mercenaries who were just there for the money or slaves because they were just there because they had to because they're slaves. That's not the the foundation for a creative force. It's also the way the American revolutionaries were able to, to beat the world's biggest empire under during the the six years of the american revolution you know people wonder like how are these farmers they didn't have industry they were just mostly farmers how are they able to mobilize themselves to beat the world's biggest military force it was three years before the french even came in officially to back them up um so how did that happen and it was because they it was coming from a different place entirely than the hessian mercenaries or the british Soldiers who are just taught to just, you know, obey orders and don't think about the reason why you're doing this. Um, so a small grouping of creative people with guerrilla tactics were able to to do the impossible. And that's that's the way history is just it's it's shaped. There's there's many more examples of uh, weaker forces in numbers who are able to defeat much physically stronger forces. And I think we see that in many ways play out with Afghanistan today. It's 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 very similar. And the danger right now is that there is a um, a new shifting of the game being played, and we are playing. We are living in a theater of the absurd, in a sense. It's all theater um, that's being yeah. showcased in in so many ways um, by the West. So whatever you're being to- shown by BBC, by CNN, by Fox, any of the mainstream sort of propaganda channels, you have to assume that there's something else behind the surface. So we're being given one narrative that you know the U.S. has had their second Vietnam, and now. They're abandoning their British compadres. And, you know, you had almost uh, like all in the same day in in lockstep, 
Tony Blair, Dominic Robb, the British foreign minister. You had the BBC talking heads. You had all of these highest level people pretty much saying the same thing on August 23rd, that they feel the U.S. has abandoned them, um, has 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 gone solo. They're so angry with these renegade Biden U.S. US uh, interests who are just like Trump. You know, you're, so you're seeing all of this stuff being projected again and again by high level people. And you're wondering, is that true? Do, do the British really feel abandoned? Is that really what's happening? Did the, did the <laughs> Americans really just go renegade? And is Biden really just like Trump in, in trying to end the forever wars? No. Is that really what's happening? No, or they realize they're getting the, 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 you know, the crap kicked out of them and they're not going to win. And so they're going to try on an asymmetric approach. And all of a sudden, as soon as this is why, as soon as the uh, the Americans were out, all of a sudden you had uh, um, um, uh, uh, Masood, uh, you know, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son, Ahmed Shah Jr., right, show up out of nowhere. He, he writes a column, an editorial column in where else? The CIA paper of repute, which is the Washington Compost, right? He has a whole editorial there of how, you know, they're fighting for Western values. Like yeah. you got to be a dingbat to believe this, right? And yeah. this kid who's of no, the snot-nosed kid who has no reputation, who has no background, no nothing in him, and the vice president of uh, of the former vice president of Afghanistan, whose name I forget. I think I don't know if it's Nazarala, Amala, whatever his name is, right? He is a known CIA Saudi asset, aka MI5, right? And so. You got these two guys all of a sudden rise up in the north in the Panjir Valley. Oh yeah, we're the Northern Alliance. We're back again. We're gonna fight against uh, uh against the Taliban. And then all of a sudden, here comes ISIS K, right? And, and they they pop up. No, they're mm-hmm. gone. They've gone totally asymmetric because the the model of the Empire of Chaos is if we can't have it, no one can. We're gonna make it an, a a very hostile place with danger in every corner, completely unstable, so that no company. In the East, in Eurasia, we'll look at it and say, you know what? It might be too risky to invest here because they've done this in Libya where Chinese were going to go in and invest in Libya. And all of a sudden they forestalled on some of the projects or they had to pull back on some of the projects because it became an extremely hostile environment for their people to work in. So this is what the empire chaos is trying to do. It's crazy, oh, man. man. Exactly, exactly. No, it, people need to really get this through their their skulls. And I mean, this is what they did in Lebanon too. China had expressed a lot of interest to help rebuild a variety of ports uh, in Lebanon and to provide massive investment into infrastructure. And then a port explodes. Had, and then you know, a the port explodes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it and was fertilizer, you, you know, fertilizer, you know. Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it was definitely a signal. It made it uh, a completely impossible area to invest in and, and to achieve any type of guarantees on loans. If you want to, you know, your insurance premiums are going to be impossible. The loans are not going to be granted. And I mean, just generally, people don't want to walk into a, 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 a house on fire if they're going to be offering to, you know, uh, work on the bathroom. So <clears throat> that's exactly what they did in Libya. You're right. We had a lot of investment, both Chinese and before that, you know, b- before Gaddafi was killed. You had uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Canadian construction firms in the nation, uh, SNC-Lavalin, which had uh, a deal with Gaddafi, and they were the, the lead firm building the great man-made water project to take the uh, the water. The biggest freshwater reserves on Earth that we know of are underneath the Sahara Desert, yep. and Gaddafi had a bold program that was mostly finished through this Canadian firm to move some of that water into the onto the surface and just do a mass uh, greening of the desert, which would have m- increased food production enormously, reforestation of the desert, rep- reclamation of the desert. Because again, keep in mind, right? The the Sahara was once lush and green, not that long ago in geological terms, even five thousand years ago. Um, that would have been a big part of the greening of the desert. It would have created more. Uh, cooling for people who are freaked out about global warming. I mean, you have more evapotranspiration means more cloud coverage, means more cooling, less less uh, heat from the sun hitting the surface and getting in the greenhouse. Um, there would have been such a myriad of effects, but most importantly, the power relationships would have completely been different from what they are today had NATO not destroyed them. Because now all of a sudden you would have had very powerful uh, I get power blocks with a huge amount of clout in Canada who would have a vested interest in doing things that were productive 
that would have been very synergistic with the Belt and Road Initiative, which only came online officially two years later. Um, it would have been, it was happening in, in parallel with Bashar al-Assad's 2004 to 2010 uh, five C's program where Bashar al-Assad, just like Gaddafi, had a program of physical economic development to unite the major five water, uh, you know, the Mediterranean, the Caspian, the Red Sea, the uh, Persian Gulf, I forget the other one, and unite them with rail, with infrastructure corridors. And he had gotten 11 countries around Syria to sign on to a memorandum of understanding of agreement to work on this thing. Which again, when you when you just map this onto the Belt and Road Initiative designs, it's again super synergistic, um, and most I guess even more importantly in some ways, the financing protocols that Qaddafi was putting online were in total disobedience of the rules based order that says that as a sovereign nation you can't control your own credit. You have to go in obedience to the IMF, the World Bank, and other uh, interests that you know are beholden to a private central banking hub if you want to have a loan on conditionalities. And Qaddafi said, no, we can do this with a, with our own gold-backed dinar, and we can do this without the IMF, and we can do it with the help of Sudan, of Bashir, and, and Mubarak, of Egypt, yeah. who are all on board wanting to help. You know, So you had a whole uh, pro-dynamic. And what happened to Egypt after a this Arab period? Spring, and then Hosni Mubarak uh, uh, conveniently had a stroke. And then he had a stroke. And what happened to Sudan? Sudan, uh, civil war, right? Civil war Not chopped up war. into south and north. Uh-huh. Yeah. Susan Rice deployed to to break him up into a, a warring Christian versus Muslim faction. Exactly. And then yeah. you, and then the Arab Spring destabilized the rest. Uh, it, it, it was incredible. They literally yeah. went uh, roughshod for for a time being, but without any sort of long term success. That's the problem with the with exceptional stand, man. Exceptional stand does a lot of planning. But they only plan for the first few stages of an operation. The middle and the ending parts, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They just kind of screw that up. Yeah, go go take the hill. All right, all right, we'll take the hill. We got the hill. What do we do now? Keep the hill. I, 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 right? I don't know. Okay, I, I, all right, we'll keep the hill. We'll keep the hill. Now what? Go back down the hill. Uh, go back down the hill. another hill. Yeah. <laughs> Stay on the hill. I don't know. We, we don't know. <laughs> Try not to get killed. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. So now we have, um, did you hear the latest news out of Libya? No. With um, um, Gaddafi's son, Saif Gaddafi. I, he's gonna, no, he, tell he's me. back. Okay. He's been staying in uh, next door in Algeria. And he is, uh, he's throwing his name into the next elections. He want, you know, and there's a nostalgic rise among true Libyans, the Libyans who've been living there forever that are yearning to see the return of the golden years of trying to get Gaddafi back in. And there's, they're trying to get Saif back in and, as, and his sister Aisha back hmm. in to, uh, you know, to, to rule the country, which is going to be interesting because you have the U.S. patsies working there, like Hakmekter. Uh, you have a few other uh, proxy groups that are in operation, terror funding organizations, the U.S. funds that hmm. are still operating there you know, with open slave markets, human trafficking, narco-trafficking, all the wonderful things that Exceptional Stand does so well. Mm. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I, I actually don't know much about uh, Saif. I, I knew that he had some, you know, he was, he was a, a bit of a party boy at yeah. some Rothschild parties on, on yachts back in the day. I didn't really know very much about him beyond that. So are you're, in your assessment, you think that this is uh, potentially a, a good thing? He's a, he's a He's grown up. He's, he's yeah. Uh, he's he's forty nine. Uh, he was a party boy in his twenties and thirties. I mean, I mean, okay. so, I mean, some of us were right. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's why he was invited to all these parties. They try to you know they they try to court Gaddafi hard, you know the father. But of mm. course, Gaddafi relented against the power structure and says, "No, we're not. You know, I don't. You know, don't want to be a part of that. We, we believe in a in a, in a pan African union that could." benefit Africa and bring real development in. And of course, we know what happened with Gaddafi. And soon after that mm-hmm. occurred, you know, the word around town is from some of my sources, even I have a source that's actually very close to someone who's very close to Saif and Aisha. And I knew about their return years ago. I mean, literally within, I, I think, five or six years ago, I was getting murmurings that Saif and Aisha are going to be returning. There were in Algeria, but they were going back and forth between Algeria and Switzerland and the south of France, 
And uh, they've also communicated with the Russians uh, as well as uh, the, the Chinese as well. They're trying to talk with everybody and uh, try to bring some sort of stability into a very, very chaotic space. Because a lot of the, the only people that are in operation there right now are the U.S. proxies, the British proxies, and then mm-hmm. the French who play both sides. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, the Russia-China uh, <clears throat> alliance, you, if, you, if you don't have diplomatic channels deeply uh, embedded into the Russian and Chinese, especially uh, military and political domains, you're screwed. You have no way of doing anything, no matter how good your intentions may be. So if they actually do have, have if they have reached out, um, that's vital. That could be a, a very serious game changer. Um, I know that in the case of, again, breaking the rules of the game, they, they have to be able to revive that orientation that their father had regarding the great, the great man-made water, which again, that, that project was the known as the eighth wonder of the world, right? Yep. And, uh, and, and the financing means of carrying it out. Today, I would imagine it's going to be a very, a, diff- a very different situation because at that time there was no U.S. Uh, China Russia alliance. There was no Belt and Road Initiative when Gaddafi was going at it almost solo as a very small country with only a few small weakened allies. Today, uh, it's a different ball game with 140 countries almost who have signed on to the BRI framework and are, I think, very quick. They would be very quick to adapt and jump on board that thing. Uh, I, I shouldn't call it thing, but that new hope for humanity with the Western uh, Titanic sinking. Um, the idea of changing the 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 rules, though, for the in alignment with the laws of nature, it's so vital because that's what this great man-made water project was. You're, the laws of nature that we can discover aren't show demonstrate to the thinking mind that there is no fixed equilibrium like we have in computer models that demonstrate. Uh, or that that allow for states of mathematical stasis. Um, you know, math is intrinsically a static uh, practice where you you always need to make two sides of an equation balance in some way, and that's how you figure things out, and that's useful for math. In and and digital computing systems operate under the same binary principles of making the system balance. Um, in in nature, we don't find any physical examples of states of such equilibrium as as much as we might try to look for them we find that even things which seem to be not changing like for example a desert doesn't have a lot of change compared to you know the type of activity uh we see in a in a in a forest where you know everything is changing not only are there more animals more biodiversity but the carbon the atoms the molecules are constantly cycling at higher and higher densities of rates uh, the, the electromagnetic fields in a, in a forest is much more active or a jungle much more active because every living thing emits electromagnetic uh, uh, signals both within its itself to communicate but also there's magnetic signals around every living thing that also interface with the broader broader electromagnetic environment of our solar system. So a desert might seem to be very fixed and in, instable in, in but we find that no all things that are deserts today were once green uh green areas were once deserts and if you go back far enough in time there was no real life beyond simple basic amoebal one cellular you know unicellular life a few hundred million years ago now we've got this incredible complexity we can even like have these conversations (laughs) you know (laughs) that's incredible to think about the the level of change um and directed change not not disorganized random change that's that's active and intelligent design and intelligent design is everywhere. There's signs of purpose, of order everywhere we look. And you have to try really hard to, to see only randomness or chaos. You have to like, it's like somebody who has to like <laughs> look at a, at, a, at a beautiful Michelangelo mural and get their eye like one millimeter from the mural and just see some random paint blotches and be like, oh, look, it's all just random because yeah. they, they didn't take a step back to just look at the thing as it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's incredible, man. It, it, it's like even uh, Michelangelo's sculptures and stuff like that. The way he was able to get the human musculature so damn perfect. Yeah. It's incredible. incredible. Totally. Detail. Totally. And it's all because of mind, right? Like his, yeah. his approach was to say, I, I, and I'm not a big, I'm, I think there's problems with Michelangelo, Michelangelo's personality and philosophy. I, you know, he had stuff he had to work through. But anyway, as an artist, his philosophy was, I, I'm not trying to uh, impose my view onto the marble. I'm trying, I, I have a concept of a creation inside of the marble that I'm trying to liberate. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very different idea. You see it also in teachers and in statesmen. 
good versus bad teachers, good versus bad statesmen. A bad teacher is somebody who wants to impose their way of thinking onto students, mold right. the students through reward and punishment into a pre-defined uh, uh, conclusion. Uh, kind of like a machine that you're programming. You're putting material into the kid's head. Uh, it's not necessarily coming coming from within the kid in the in that process. They're just being rewarded to give you right answers or being punished when they're asking uncomfortable questions that you might not have an answer to, which is, again, a bad teacher. Right. A good teacher is doing the opposite. It's, it's A good teacher is being playful. He or she is trying to get the kid to awaken a curiosity and awe of, to figure things out on their own. So they're focusing more on the question and did I activate the question before the kid comes to the answer? Or did I just skip a step? Did, did I just give the kid an answer? Which kills the knowledge. It might be the right or the right opinion that the kid comes to, but it's not real knowledge that they can use or, or in any useful way. They're, they're, they're still a machine. A statesman, same thing, right? A statesman is, is somebody who has a good one. I, I guess you can compare that between Martin Luther King versus Barack Obama. Uh, they're both using rhetoric. They're both stimulating their audience uh, one of them actually has a, a strong faith in their audience's ability to um, be, to, tr to transform on their own. And you're not trying to just cater or flatter your audience. Martin Luther King was very hard on his audience as he was hard on himself. Um, and you're, you're, so you, you have a different idea that you're awakening something within the, the group that is looking upon you and listening to your speech. Versus a Barack Obama, who is a behaviorist, who's just trying to invoke a feeling state through flattery, for, through whatever uh, techniques of rhetoric in order to get the mob to do something. It, right. There's nothing that they're awakening. They're just it's it's just uh, manipulation. So it's 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 I think you're you're dealing with that with nature, too. Right. Like uh, somebody who is trying to um, change nature in an unlawful way. They are they are forcing a change, whether it's like, let's say I want to clear cut an Amazon rainforest to turn uh, resources into money as fast as possible. I don't care about the consequences. And even if that means changing nature, somebody who like, again, Gaddafi or um, like I think what China is doing with its scientific approach to desert management by greening big chunks of the Gobi Desert there. They have the biggest water project in history in, in China right now. The Move South Water North project. Yeah. Two of the three phases are complete. This is going to massively green. It's already greened a big chunk of the world. Biodiversity has increased by 10% because of these big projects that both China and India have together done in the last 20 years. What? Are you saying that uh, that the, they did not uh, decimate their uh, infrastructure and uh, industry and put up solar panels and uh, and windmills? They did that. They, they actually did put up windmills and solar panels, a lot of solar panels. But at the same time, they, the, the difference between China and, let's say, the build back better for the world green new deal version is that on the one hand, China's playing a bit of a game because they're, they're, it's like, I got this again, this my favorite Bruce Lee cup, right? Be water. My friend, it's this Aikido principle of you don't, you don't force against a powerful enemy. You, you go with the enemy. If you're not going to stop their, the momentum of their punch, you move with their punch and let the, let their momentum uh, undo them. So on the one hand, they can't undo the amount of propaganda and momentum for green greening the world's energy grids. Um, that's something which is stronger than they're able to handle. So on the one hand, they have a lot of, a lot of free energy to play with and they've put a lot of it into green so-called, you know, uh, green energies. But at the same time, they're giving it its proper place. They're not, they, they don't assume that that's going to power their industrial needs. They, it's, it's for the residential buildings. That's fine. You could do, you could have solar panels with backups, of course, and generators, but whatever, you can have those types of low, low density energy sources that are very expensive, but they give you a lot of energy, but of a low quality, you can't, you can't melt industrial steel. You can't sustain industrial civilization with these things. So they have it in its proper place. Um, but they're also investing massively in natural gas. Uh, China's putting online their first prototype for a molten salt thorium reactor in the Gobi Desert as we speak right now. Uh, they've got the most advanced multiple approaches to fusion power development, uh, to nuclear power development of third and fourth generation reactors that are the things that are powering their industrial needs and their neighbors. Whereas in the West, we don't have that scientific understanding of energy and as such, we're falling prey to this idea that we can have, like, you know, you look at the U.S. infrastructure uh, program and 
to, if you're going to have a green new deal, it might create a bunch of jobs, but the quality of energy that you're going to give your society or, or, or shackle your society into after you build these, these, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of hectares of solar panel farms are not only going to increase desertification because wherever you have a mass solar panel farm, you are increasing the heat up to five degrees. So that is going to kill the biodiversity of the areas that could otherwise host biodiversity, food production or otherwise, that's going to be annihilated. So you're going to set nature backwards. That's, I think, an unnatural way of of changing nature. Number two, you're also uh, inducing the quality of energy. You won't be able to, as we said, sustain any type of industrial activity. That won't happen. So you're always, and sometimes it won't be reliable. So there will be a lot of cloud coverage. And when there's cloud coverage, those solar panels don't do much. So you have to always have coal or other backup uh, generators. Sometimes the windmills don't have any wind, so they're useless. So you have to have backups that use more more coal and other dirty energy sources. Um, and on top of it, things like windmills, for people who believe in the pristine equilibrium of nature, I don't believe that. But for those who do, they walk into a big paradox because uh, like these these gigantic windmills the size of 747s or bigger yeah there's a i mean there's so many and they create um sonar dis, uh, disturbances into the system which re- result in all sorts of birds thinking birds navigate by sonar and also by electromagnetic readings right that they all up screws it all up and they don't fly into the they either get that thrown off completely from their migration patterns or they just fly right into the 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 windmills and die and get chopped up that's, I mean, right there, just fuck. Um, so it's just, China's not doing that. China has an understanding of what type of energy sources are needed. And their green energy sources, in my mind, are just there to shut the shut people up who are virtue signaling them in the West. That's all it is. That's all yeah. it is, man. Yeah, speaking of, uh, there's been some some geostri- geopolitical, geostrategic realignments that have been occurring ever since this Afghan backdrop. We've had mm-hmm. uh, Kamala Ho Harris, Kamala Ho, who decided to frequent Singapore and, and Vietnam with uh, the uh, the epitaph, the, the, the axiom yeah. that America is back and that, you know, we need to watch out for China's aggression in the South China Seas. China's aggression in the South China Seas. I mean, you think about it, the, 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 the damn sea is named after them, okay? Mm-hmm. So you got Camel, uh, Kamala, who's out there saying this. In the backdrop, you have Afghanistan falling apart to pieces. This is what's the most laughable thing. These people are so elite. They're so forward-thinking that they choose a time when Afghanistan, a, <laughs> Afghanistan falling apart to send this idiot bimbo to go talk about America's back, which is funny because if you remember, Matt, okay, Afghanistan was falling apart, was hot on the heels of what country, what other country was falling apart with their attempt to create war between it and Russia, Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. So within the span of like four or six weeks, Ukraine got burned by the U.S., and then Afghanistan gets burned by the U.S., Mm -hmm. and then Kamala is out there saying America is back. Oh like, yeah, who's convinced at this point, right? The level of disassociation here is is, oh, is clinically God. interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad yeah. you said that. Clinically interesting, because it uh, is. It, it, there's a lot to extract there. Now, which is also funny is that you have a country which you know historically has been a the hub. It's been the the pivot point between east and west, especially when it comes to commerce in in terms of a uh, uh, trade, in terms of uh, gold settlement, and which is Turkey. And Turkey has announced, which is pretty interesting that, you know, these are I've known from, you know, from close uh, uh, associates of mine who are intimate with that area uh, of the world, who've known that during the time when the Turkish lira was being attacked, right, when their currency was being uh, attacked in the Forex markets and when their economic uh, uh, um, uh, attacks that were happening in, in Turkey, with, especially with the attempted coup on Erdogan, which I'm no fan of Erdogan at all, right, they needed stabilization. And during that time, it was the Russians and the Chinese that came in and helped to stabilize Turkey, economically speaking. Now, watch this now. Turkey is already, and you're going to see this announcement in the next couple of weeks and maybe the next few months, they're going to make nice-nice with the Armenians. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They're going to make nice-nice with the Armenians so much to the fact. Now, they've made mentions of this before, but this time it's different because they're actually going to admit Okay, and say, look, we really apologize for the Armenian genocide. 
You think that so? is what I'm hearing. So in the next few months, hmm. this is a development that we can. I'm not saying it's 100. percent It's going to happen, but there's going to be some sort of um, some sort of a a a a, a, a uh, synergistic partnership or or civil understanding that's going to come between Armenia and Turkey because these two countries are very integral to the multipolar world, to the Eurasian trade zone, as well as the One Belt, One Road initiative. That is very interesting. And this would not have happened if it were not for the debacle in Afghanistan that hastened all of this. So this is pretty interesting. No, and again, the historical forces I just find always so so fascinating to hold this this in mind because when you when you think about some of the dynamics at play even now, um, though they're separated by big swaths of time, um, they still exert an influence. And uh, if you look at one of the big players in the original Armenian genocide, <clears throat> was somebody who who helped organize, run, and arm the Young Turks movement, uh, Alexander Helfand. Who is also known as Parvis from the Ukraine, but he was a big part of a uh, Okrana um, operation, which was used to overthrow the Czars, um, who had been a little bit too cozied up to the Lincoln allies after the Civil War. Czar Alexander II yep. had his, uh, just like the the, the um, um, JFK's security detail, uh, was a part of the assassination plot in Dallas in '63. It was very similar where the Okrana secret police, uh, which had been set up by uh, Count Ignatiev, um, as part of the, you know, th- these these were groups who represented the old feudal oligarchs of Russia who hated the idea of Tsar Alexander and uh, Tsar Alexander the second and third's program for industrialization, which would have essentially, you know, destroyed their feudal system. So they hated that, and they set up these these encrusted families that had a high degree of overlap with a lot of the families of Venice. Um, they, I mean, these were the heirs of the the Roman Empire. Uh, they set up the Okrana. Uh, Count Ignatieff is the great grandfather of uh, Michael Ignatieff, the person who ran the uh, the Liberal Party of Canada in recent years, and is currently a George Soros associate uh, running the Open Society Institute uh, University in um, in Hungary which I think he was kicked out now. Um, so it's, it's still a longstanding thing. And, uh, and so Hellman, uh, Helfand, Alexander Helfand, um, was an, an associate with Trotsky. They organized mass anarchist movements to help di- sever and break apart, on the one hand, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, which had plans with Russia, with Otto von Bismarck circles to industrialized, modernized with the Berlin to Baghdad railway in the 1880s, 1890s, all the way, and World War One and, and Russian Revolution got in the way, unfortunately. The Russians were also helping, who were still the the enemies of Parvis uh, and allies of, of uh, Alexander III, who had been assassinated in, in the 1890s. Uh, people like Sergei Vita was the transport minister and later prime minister who made the Trans-Siberian Railway happen. It was completed in 1905, begun in 1890. And again, this is all part of a American system grand design in uh, all of Eurasia uh, using the protective tariff of, of Lincoln and McKinley, long-term credit for building and industrializing big projects and big infrastructure. That was what this is all about. It was and, and, and to do it in such a way that you do it to help your neighbors do the same thing. That was the foreign policy of, of whether it was, again, pro-Lincoln forces in Germany, in France under Sadi Carnot, who was assassinated in 1895 under Alexander the second or third and their allies who survived beyond. Um, and so you, you had, when the young Turks were able to achieve their coup and, and put in one of their assets, you had, yeah, an extermination campaign, uh, which resulted in, in, uh, a total intolerance for any ethnic groups, uh, and the Armenians suffered greatly. Um, there, there's these historical ironies. And, and again, who was Parvis? Who was Trotsky? These were the advocates of permanent war, permanent revolution. The idea that that's the only way society could be governed until, until the a hegemon, a leviathan, could be created of world government to finally uh, bring about a world era of peace. But it would be a peace of the uh, of the grave. And these are the groups that eventually morphed. They they tried to kill Stalin. I mean, there were several attempts to run a massive conspiracy with Japanese fascists and Nazis uh, in Ukraine and Germany 
throughout the 1930s to install Trotsky as the Russian fascist running this permanent revolution thing for a worldwide global revolution. And he was always in bed with, again, Parvis, with Jabotinsky was a part of this too. Jabotinsky, the, uh, the, the person who uh, Bibi Netanyahu's father was the personal secretary to, um, uh, he was called Vladimir Hitler by uh, uh, Ben-Gurion. Because he said, I, I, would, I would join the Nazi party if they weren't so anti-Jew. He's like, <laughs> these, these, the, the heirs of the, the modern Zionist, you know, the most radical aspects of the Zionist uh, movements. So, I mean, they were all enmeshed and, uh, and Trotsky was put out of his misery, but his, the thing he, the machine that he was running continued on far after his death. And when, tr when Stalin died, this thing completely took over Russia with the, um, the cybernetic systems analysis crowd being brought in with the help of Bertrand Russell, with Kim Philby, a lot of these British MI6 triple agents who all retired in Russia, and they all became super powerful and influential after Stalin uh, under Khrushchev and beyond. And then inside of the United States, a lot of these Trotskyites, like Trotsky's personal secretary, I was just reading, um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, uh, Burnham, uh, James Burnham. This guy was... Trotsky's personal secretary in the U.S. He was a CIA. He, he was part of the the OSS first. A big, big uh, intellectual figure who trained Alfred uh, Wolfsetter from the Rand Corporation, who who was himself the teacher of Richard Pearl, uh, Robert Fife. Uh, I mean, people like uh, uh, um, Rumsfeld. A lot of the original ultra right Wolfowitz. Christian. Wolfowitz, yeah, the, the Christian evangelical fundamentalist nut jobs, nut jobs, all grew out of the. They were all Trotskyites. They all grew out of the Trotskyite it's, movement. It's true. <laughs> and you go to an evangelical church today in America. This is the kind of crap you the crap you hear is is unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable. Totally. So you just see the, again these these. We gotta we gotta support Israel. <laughs> yeah, God's chosen people. Where the fuck did that come from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's two salvations. The Jews are already saved, and now us Christians, you know, we got to believe in Jesus in order for us to be saved. But, you know, God has a special covenant with Israel and America, too. God has a covenant with That's why when this idiot Jonathan Conner, remember that he wrote a book called Harbinger? And that was mm -hmm. like a couple years back. It was, uh, I mean, it had something to do with, I don't know, 2012. I, I have no idea. Called the Harbinger. This guy named Joseph, Rabbi Joseph uh, Kahn, right? And it was K H A N. I think he should have spelled it C O N. The guy was clueless. He's like, "Oh yeah, America had a had a uh, uh, um, a what is it called? A, a covenant with God. You know, George Washington had a covenant with God." Mm. I'm like, "These are these are stupid Old Testament concepts that have no bearing on modern Christendom." Number one, there's no covenant God has with any country. Period. Okay, it's just the way it is. And but the average, uh, you know, evangelical doesn't understand that. You see, the concept of covenant is pretty interesting, right? Like, Matt, if you and I were to make covenant, this is like you know, back in the day in Israel, this is how we would do it, right? I take a goat, I take a, a heifer, you know, a really nice cow, right? A turtle dove, whatever animal, and I'd cut the animals in half, right? And then you and I would hold hands and we'd walk in between the animals. That is a covenant, that's a blood covenant. That would literally mean. That if I don't hold my end of the deal, let me be like these animals. Mm. Okay, that's what a covenant is, right? And the whole story between the Abrahamic covenant is that God caused Abraham to go to sleep, and he himself, as a pillar of fire, went in between those cut animals. Meaning, I hold your end of the deal and my end of the deal at once. In other words, at the same time. In other words, don't worry, I got you, right? Mm. But that's not what George wants. That's an Old Testament concept, right? So that doesn't translate to George Washington having a prayer in the middle of the night that some sort of covenant was made. This is insanity, but these are the type of fable-like fable, fable -like concepts that are parroted about in American church churchianity, as I like to call it, right, to cause the people in order to get behind these foreign wars. Oh, we have to protect Israel. We have to bring war in order that Christ could come back to the world. I mean, what is wrong with these people, man? Yeah, no, exactly. And a lot of the stuff, it wasn't really there. If, if It wasn't a dominant feature of Protestant Christianity of America in the 19, for most of human history, it wasn't there. Um, and, and in the 60s, you know, people would think of the millennium as being uh, 
you know, if Jesus is going to come back, like there's a lot of people basically recognize that as a time when if that's going to be the case, then we should be on our best behavior. Yeah. We should we should we should make the world as good of a place as possible so that it's a place that Jesus would want to come to. Um, and and that was something that was uh, uh, dominant in whatever we might call the left, as well as the right Republicans and Democrats who were Christian. They generally had that view that science, technology, morality were something we could all channel and be instruments of in God's creation. And even astronauts, you know, they say, you know, religion is not scientific. It's like, well, these astronauts were, were quoting from the Bible when they were in space, you know, about to yeah. descend on the moon. And I mean, like there's a very deep religios religiosity in, uh, in science and in people like Einstein, maybe not have, maybe he wasn't a Christian in the conventional sense, but he definitely believed in God even said that I, I just, my, my main purpose is to know God's mind. The every, everything else is details. Uh, Max Planck, who discovered again, the quantum of action uh, called the Planck constant in looking at light emanate from black body radiation, who opened up a new field of science was a devout believer in, uh, in God, in a creative God that made us in his image. And we, and, and so their approach to science was governed by a commitment and a love of of God, a respect, right? It was kind of like a prayer. And that's what Bach was doing with his amazing musical uh, creations as well. It was a, These were prayers to express beauty and truth and goodness in the form of your medium, um, which were not broken up in the arts versus the sciences as two separate worlds like they are in, in, in our CIA-run culture today, which has said, no, if you're an artist, you're a feeler. If you're a, a, a scientist, you're a thinker. Um, in living in two separate worlds that cannot coexist, that is bullshit. That's the reason why we're not making any more major revolutions like we used to even 80 years ago under Einstein and Planck and, and others. So, um, all that to say the Christian movement today ha has become really, and again, when you, you have to look at the fact that it's these nihilistic, sociopathic, Nietzschean, atheistic Trotskyites <laughs> who all bred the new age of Pat Robertson, end times Christianity, all this rapture stuff. It only emerged in recent years as a dominant force that was only geopolitically useful. It didn't come organically as a natural evolution from religion. It happened right. because there's geopolitical influences who see that as useful to have Bingo. fundy Zionists out to create Armageddon so that they could bring in the Messiah for the first time, and and it's just as useful to have them working with <laughs> and the Messiah that they, and the Messiah they want to bring ain't the Messiah that these Christians are thinking about. <laughs> no, it's not. It's the it's the oh. other one that Jesus was warning you about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't want that guy. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and in their mind, it's a sin to not do that. Right. Because yeah. it's like it's all preordained in Revelation and the book of Daniel. It's so if it's God's will that the that the earth burn in this specific way that we're going to choose to read it, then anybody who tries to solve the problems of avoiding the war are actually running against God's will and are thus sinners and wrong. And so you can create this whole self brainwashing system. Right. Yeah. Where you, you start getting this glazed over look that, yes. Yeah. It's it's maybe good that we're having Armageddon against Russia and China, who somehow represent Gog and Magog, because that's whoever somebody told us that's what they represent. That, yeah, Gog and uh, Magog is that. And, 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 and the funny <laughs> thing is also is, this is what this is what kind of you know sideline and the sidelined yeah. the entire Christian movement in, in North America is this whole entire pre-tribulation rapture nonsense, a doctrine that was never held by the early church. A doctrine that was created in the late 1800s, I think, by John Darby, who was an occultist. He would uh, he would uh, uh, confer with uh, occultist uh, witches in order to get his visions and whatnot, and they concoct. And Darby's there's all sorts of uh, chicanery with secret societies and whatnot that run through Darby, uh, hmm. Rosicrucians and whatnot, and of course the Crown itself. And then that was exported into America. And lo and behold, the concept, don't worry about the chaos in the world. Before anything happens, the rapture will come and you will be gone in a twinkling of an eye. And you got Kirk Cameron with his uh, dumb movie Left Behind, right? <laughs> all these other things. And this is, this is what happens. You know, so you got a whole bunch of people who should be active in the day-to-day -day politics of their nation, who should be a vigilant and upright citizenry. But they're like, 
oh well, before anything bad happens, you know, Jesus is gonna come. the the uh, The skies are gonna roll up like a scroll, and I'm gonna be out of here, man. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. It yeah, creates it, intellectual laziness, and it creates laziness across the board. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. I, it really does bug me as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I mean, a lot of this is you're just hiding behind the Bible. You're you're hiding from your own responsibilities to do to be an actual instrument of God. Like it's like that's the most important thing in the Bible is is where Jesus is asked. In my view, I think that this is this is I would defend this, but where Jesus is act is asked by uh i guess it's a pharisees or uh you know he's he's being tricked like what's the most important which one of the ten commandments is the most important in your eyes mr know-it-all you know smarty pants and he says he doesn't answer any of the ten commandments it's the new dispense it's it's a new revel uh not a revelation it's it's a new testament right yeah and and he says no it's 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 not any of these negative uh negations of don't do this don't do that he says love god and love your neighbor like yourself this is where the golden rule also come, comes out of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's all, it's all part of the same package. It's positive, right? Love. That's the key thing. Love God, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you do that, if you do that, um, you're basically doing God's will. You're being an instrument of God. That's why he created us to, to basically just, and you'll, you'll access, even if you're uncomfortable, if your life is made uncomfortable because of your mandate to follow your conscience and these, these principles, you will still be infinitely happier than somebody who has success and has disobeyed those things in their success as little slaves uh, for an empire. And I think that, and it's the source of creativity, right? You'll, you'll, you'll have more insight to see through things that other people, because they've compromised their morality, they've compromised their thinking. As you said, it, it encourages lazy reasoning. Um, they, they lose the ability that God gave them to have insight to see what their mind's eye behind the surface appearance of things into causality. And w- without that, that sight, they have no power of acting in a way that changes the context, the situation that's leading us into tragedy. Only people who, who practice that muscle and you have to continuously reaffirm it and repractice it. Otherwise it gets like any muscle. If you don't go to the gym, right? I, I haven't gone to the gym for a while. I feel a bit bad that I'm, I'm almost intervening on myself right now that I should do this, but your muscles get flabby. You lose the capacities you once gained, right? Same, same thing with the mind's eye. Um, so it takes work. It takes action. And people who end up following down this perversion of Christianity, and there's versions in Islam and versions in other, in, in Judaism and other, other religions too, that, that are very passive. You know, you got belly button, uh, Buddhists, who you got good Buddhists who see that their karma is tied to doing good yep. uh, in the, the gift of time that we're alive here in reincarnation. And we have to maximize our goodness to the best way possible while we're alive in order to have it. It will, it, whatever the case may be in the afterlife, it will have an effect on that. Same thing for people in, in different uh, monotheistic views. Um, and then you got the, pe- the, the lame ones who are just like, no, I just want to achieve enlightenment and the world is governed by evil that's the work of the devil or whatever the material forces. And I'm just going to try to detach myself in my own selfish little bubble. And I, I'm going to navel gaze and I'm sorry, you're just wasting away. You're wasting the gift God gave you or whatever the forces of the universe that you want to give credence to. You're wasting your talent on nothing and uh, good things that could be happening uh, are not going to be happening. Bad things that, that are happening will not be stopped by your sin of omission or commission. Um, and that's, I think the greatest, the greatest danger. Cause there's, you know, 8 billion people on the earth, all made in the image of God yeah. who have a power of, of self-perfectibility and cultivating their, their potentials and putting them into action, which would, I mean, even if a small fraction of that organized in a, in a coherent way, the empire, which only represents a small little minority of sociopathic nut jobs would completely be wiped out. They couldn't be able to exert, put their, their talents into the, the, the victim that they're trying to take over. But people are just, you know, too many people so far still haven't recognized that fact of their their potential. Exactly right, my friend. Exactly right. Mm. Matt, we're about the end of the show. Any last words? Mm, no, I think that's pretty. That's a pretty. I think. Yeah. yeah, philosophically solid way to probably wrap it up. I suppose um, if people want, um, you know, I, I always implore people at the end of our little. Uh, chats to uh to get in touch with the rising tide foundation every sunday we do our our weekly lectures 
Last Sunday, we had something by Jeffrey Steinberg, uh, an amazing geopolitical analyst on the history of U.S.-Russian relations uh, hundreds of years into the past, as well as deep into the future. That's going to be on our website uh, soon. If people want to get on board every single Sunday, we've got these things planned out um, as part of our self-education process. So uh, send an email to info at risingtidefoundation.net. And uh, beyond that, I wouldn't really have much too much more to say. Very well said. Folks, you're listening to the man, the myth, the legend himself, Matthew Errett. You can find all his links from the CanadianPatriot.com, uh, the RisingTideFoundation.net, as well as his Substack, all in the description box below, as well as his link to Strategic Culture. Everything is there right in the description box. And we'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. This is The Great Game with Matthew Errett.